Hi, welcome to Head Start, the podcast for race directors and the business of putting on races. If you have built a business putting on races, chances are you would have thought of maybe selling some or all of those races at some point in the future. You may also have toyed with the idea of buying races from others as a way to grow your event portfolio. Buying and selling races still remains a big mystery for most race directors, even very experienced ones. How do you go about it? How do you find events to buy if you're a buyer? And where do you turn to sell your event if you're a seller? What is an event even worth on the market? And how does a typical purchase and sale transaction go down? Well, we're going to be going into all that and more today in our super exciting episode with the help of my two guests, Tony Sam and Porter Bratton. As you'll hear in a minute, Tony and Porter have a lot of experience between them in buying and selling events, and they have tons of great tips to help you get a good feel for where you stand as a buyer or seller of races in this market, and how you can make the most of the opportunities available to you in this very peculiar post-pandemic environment we find ourselves in. Before we go into all that, though, I need to give a quick shout out to our podcast sponsor, Give Sign Up, Run Sign Up. Normally, at this point, I tell you how Give Sign Up, Run Sign Up's free and integrated technology supports more than 22,000 in-person, virtual, and hybrid events, helping them save time, grow, and raise more. Which is all absolutely true, of course. But on this particular episode today, as we're going into stuff that just wouldn't have seen the light of day if it weren't for the support of our friends at Give Sign Up, Run Sign Up, I feel really grateful for what they've done for Head Start and for all of you guys tuning in every other week to listen to this podcast. So thank you guys at Give Sign Up, Run Sign Up. And you, dear listener, if you're not a Give Sign Up, Run Sign Up customer already, go to runsignup.com. That's runsignup.com. And just check out all the many great things you could be achieving for your event for free with the help of this amazing platform. Okay, it's time. Let's get into buying and selling races. Tony, Porter, welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us. Hi. Well, thanks a lot for coming on both. Um, we've had a few gremlins, actually, getting you here. So let's hope everything holds for the rest of the podcast. So we have a very exciting episode today with the both of you on buying and selling races. Awesomely interesting topic that lots of people wanted to know more about. But before we get into all that, let's go over some introductions, shall we? So take it in turn, please, and introduce yourselves, uh, where you're based, your company, the races you put on, and basically what you're doing within the industry. Yeah, I guess I'll go first. My name is Porter Bratton, and uh, I live in Anacortes, beautiful Anacortes, Washington. My races are in and around the Seattle area, greater Seattle area in Washington state. Uh, I'm one of the owners of a company that we have a couple different facets of. We've got a road running brand called Orca Running. We've got a trail running brand called Evergreen Trail Runs, and we also have a new Uh, guided trail running adventure trip brand called Evergreen Excursions. And uh, that's what we do. So we put on a lot of different races, got about 26 or 27 races in the Washington state. Have a great time doing it. Super. Tony? Yeah. So my name's Tony Sapp. I'm the owner of Negative Split Productions based out of Houston, Texas. At this point, we're offering race consulting and timing services in the greater Houston area. 
and awards nationwide. But previously, I owned and operated uh, some of the largest running events in the Houston area, doing about 25,000 participants a year, as well as the, uh, I still own and operate the world's largest kids triathlon uh, based out of uh, Katy, Texas at one of the new water parks over there. Awesome. And I think part of those 25,000 are the races that you sold, right? Which we're going to get into later in the episode. Correct. Okay, great. So as I said, today, we're going to be talking about buying and selling races. It's a topic that I think most race directors, at least the people who are in it, you know, through commercial for-profit companies have thought about, uh, must have thought about, uh, you know, some kind of exit for the business or a way to expand their business by uh, buying more races. So I think there's going to be a really interesting topic for them. And I chose the two of you because although you've both, both sold and bought races, uh, I think Porter was telling me he's had a lot of experience buying some races, and actually uh, that process is going to be really instructive, how you reached out to the right people and, you know, like that whole process. And then Tony, of course, um, sold your series of races. Uh, you went through the business brokers, all of that stuff, which uh, is also going to be very interesting for people. So in brief, first, if you can, uh, maybe Tony, you start first. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background in buying and selling events. Yeah. So when back in 2015, we started the Run Houston Race Series and the Bayou City Half Series here in the Houston, greater Houston area. Uh, Run Houston consisted of five 5K and 10K events, and the Bayou City Half Series was a uh, half marathon and 5K. Um, around 2018 or so, uh, my business partner and I decided we wanted to make some changes and made the decision to place those those races for sale so we could focus on some other events still within the same industry. Um, so it's, you know, as we went through the process, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, I guess, later. Basically, I learned a lot about what it was, what I, what we actually owned and what we uh, what we were what we were putting out there. Um, it wasn't actually the business itself, it was more the assets of the business. So I've been putting on races since about 2010 and in about 2014, 2015, similar time frame to Tony, um, wanted to start expanding our races beyond what we had. And we did start several races, but we also bought several races. And so for me, mostly been buying races. And that has been primarily a way to grow the business um, and wanted to fill in holes geographically, um, races that were in a spot where we wanted to have a race or in the calendar where we wanted to kind of have um, races, not year round, but wanted to cover a decent amount of the calendar year. And it's been a great process. And we've kind of have slowed down and haven't bought a race in a little while because we're kind of full at this point, and, uh, which is a good place to be. So Porter, you said that you decided at some point that it made sense to expand the business. And you thought that maybe purchasing an event would be a good way of doing that. So at that point, how do you start looking for a race to buy? Like what's, um, what's the first step you would take? Yeah, I mean, everyone, each buying experience has been quite different. Uh, some of the times it's been a race that I bought from somebody that I know very well and I'm friends with and have a very close relationship with, uh, which is in many ways easier, but um, can also be a little more fraught when you're mixing business and, and relationships or friendships. Other times it's been a relative stranger who I was aware of, you know, in the same industry, in the same air, general area, but I didn't really have a relationship with. And so, um, yeah, each relationship or each purchase has been a lot different. And so it's required a different approach in each case 
Um, in the cases where I don't, I mean, I don't know if I should get into detail about each kind right now, but um, I think you have to you have to evaluate each race that you're wanting to buy and come up with a strategy for for how how you want to proceed and how you want to start that uh, that transaction. And understanding that um, not every attempt will be successful and sometimes people won't want to sell or it price may be too high or, or something may happen. So you would even reach out to people like just cold? You'll you'll just find a race that works and yes. yeah, just email them or pick up the phone? Yeah, I've done that. I've done that one time, I guess, where there was no relationship whatsoever. And I reached out and it, it took a little while to kind of get a response and whatnot. But um, I'm fairly persistent. I have no shame about emailing people more than once. And so uh, the squeaky wheel gets the grease and, and you get a response. And that's how you kind of start the dialogue. Um, but I don't necessarily recommend it. I think it's not I think it's not easy. And uh, it does where you're approaching somebody as a motivated buyer, then they have the advantage essentially of being able to not quite dictate whatever price they feel like. But if they know that you're approaching them out of the blue, then unless they have a distressed race where it's doing very poorly and maybe they see you as a as a great opportunity, if they're if they're doing well, um, they can put a higher price on their race and you'll probably pay it because you want it. Yeah, I think that's a point actually um, you made to me the other day when we were chatting about this, where you said that basically this market is so thin liquidity-wise, basically the party that makes the first move is sort of a little bit at disadvantage, meaning, you know, you reach out to someone, you're saying, I want to buy your race. Obviously, that guy is not necessarily thinking of selling their race, so they kind of have the upper hand and sort of like vice versa for you, just to wrap that up. When you start looking out for opportunities, you know, you say, okay, I have a hole in my calendar in October, that kind of general uh, region or area would make sense for me to look into purchasing an event. So that's kind of like time of year and location that come into it when uh, when you're looking to buy a race. What are the factors that you're looking at? So sort of um, how are you sorting the opportunities available to you? What does what does a good purchase opportunity look like? Well, I think the race that is doing really well, where the numbers are going up every year, or they're high and they're staying high is going to be difficult um, because presumably that that race is doing well and, and why would they want to? Um, so it may be that you need to look for perhaps some race owners who are older and are looking to perhaps retire or get out of it. Maybe they're feeling they've had a great run and they've put this, on, this race on for 10 years or 15 years or whatever and uh, are ready to hand it off to somebody younger and more experienced. That could be a good opportunity. Um, in that case, a prior relationship would be very helpful, I think, because that person probably views that race as a, as a, with, with some amount of affection um, and memories and nostalgia. Um, other times, I think a good opportunity could be a race where the race is not doing well, and maybe the race director or the race owner feels like, eh, this, you know, this, use, this race used to be doing well, but it's kind of floundering, or we've been trying to get it off the ground for a couple of years, but just haven't quite, you know, figured out how to do the marketing well. And so in that case, if you have a race that's, if, if that race could fit well into your calendar year, but um, it's not doing so well, you can make a strong case to that potential seller that, hey, I can take this race and give it the success that that you feel like it deserves and it merits by plugging it into my calendar of races and my existing runners. 
and they will they are they're already running it some of them are already running it but now many more of them would run it and it would it would flourish under under my ownership and that's kind of the approach you could take right and i'm guessing maybe tony wants to confirm that that being on the other side of the transaction because you tried selling a large bunch of uh, races tony is slightly trickier right i guess because, you know, like in Porter's case, you know he wants to buy a race. He knows who the potential sellers could be, right? The the race director. So he would go out and find someone. I guess if you're trying to sell a race, does that still work? Uh, sort of doing the reverse of that. So like trying to find local race directors and knocking on their door and saying, you know, are you interested in buying my races? Yeah. So we talked about that a little bit. Uh, the issue was the relationship between some of the other race directors in the area and we didn't feel comfortable going and advertising that hey we're you know we're looking at getting out of the space in the Houston area uh and just the, the sheer size of our events i mean like like i mentioned we were pulling almost 20,000 people a year for the events that we were looking to offload when we made the decision to sell it wasn't a requirement that we sell the races were still doing good um, they were pulling in numbers. The margins were, were, were hanging right around where they should be for an event. And they were bringing cash flow, you know, positive cash flow to the business. We didn't have to sell when we did. So it wasn't something where we were going out and, and advertising that we were, we were, hey, you know, big for sale sign or, you know, putting up a billboard in the city or anything. I think that's kind of what drove the decision that or kind of drove how we ended up listing was through a broker versus us, go, us trying to sell it ourselves. Um, it kind of separated us from the, you know, this was, you know, as, as Porter mentioned, this is our baby. This is, we grew it from the ground up and, you know, we built it to the, built it to what it is. So it's worth, you know, millions upon millions of dollars, you know, because of that, of all the hard work we put in to, to do that. Um, it's just not the case whenever trying to look at what the actual worth of an event is and, and, you know, how you, how you calculate the kind of return you're getting, you know, um, this being on the, the buying and selling side, my buying experience is more in the buying percentage ownership into events versus full events. So not quite as extensive as Porter. I just wanted to try and separate that emotional attachment that we had uh, from the process and you know how we were coming up with the numbers and everything. Right. And you reached out to a broker, which is really interesting, actually, I think, um, at least it, in terms of this being a resource light approach to going about selling a race. Um, I guess like, you know, the, the broker would take care of uh, most things for you, right? So tell us a little bit about that. So how did you pick the right broker? How did you vet them? How did you get to find someone you trust? So we reached out to three different brokers that had a pretty diversified portfolio of selling different kinds of businesses. Um, you know, there's brokers out there that specialize in construction and uh, things of that nature. So we wanted some, because we knew that there's not a lot of races going up for sale. So we wanted somebody that had kind of a diverse portfolio of different businesses they were selling. So that was kind of our first criteria. Once we got beyond that, we needed, obviously we needed communication. Um, I wanted to make sure they got back to me. So if I reached out to somebody and they didn't email me back for a week, that was an immediate red flag because this is a, a this is going to be a process and we knew it was going to be. And then, of course, the, the fees, you know, at the end of the day, it all comes down to how much money you're putting in your pocket um, when you're trying to sell an event. So it was kind of a balancing act. And where, where we ended up settling on, it wasn't the cheapest, but it was the one we felt most comfortable with at the time. And they were great. Uh, basically, the process was they they provided a worksheet. Uh, it was about 10 pages long uh, with questions. Uh, some were really simple questions. Some were a little more complicated where we had to do a little more digging. 
and that was the first step. And they built our uh, basically a public facing prospectus out of that uh, worksheet. And it was just a, a listing on their website that they that they had, and they you know had, they had their own other marketing to to people, the potential buyers. And then after that, it was just paperwork, lots of you know lots of different requests, you know books, uh, uh, financial reports, any outstanding bills, balances, things like that. And just keeping that information up to date. We were on the market for a good nine months before we got the, the person that ultimately ended up buying the races. So it was it was definitely a process and keeping things updated too. So the latest information was available whenever somebody did approach them. Right. And that person in the end, if I'm not mistaken, they didn't have a background as a race director, right? No, they did not. They were they were a runner. They were runners and they just were interested in trying something new. I guess similar to the situation I was in whenever I jumped into the business from an office job, um, just wanted to get out of the office and start doing something a little different. So I think they were in the similar position I was in when I first started, only they had the resources to be able to, to do something like uh, buying into a business versus trying to do the, the painstaking effort of trying to build something you know, from mostly the ground up. So, Did you find that working with someone through the broker, of course, who possibly, you know, tried helping and, and pulled their weight in some respects. But did you find that working with someone on the other end who doesn't have the race directing background made things a little bit harder, uh, maybe in some ways, you know, like just getting them to understand the business and, you know, lots of stuff that might have been new to them as they were working through the transaction? Actually, it made the selling process easier at the end of the day because now I had to, I wasn't talking to another race director when we were selling. We were talking to another runner, somebody that had never been in the race production business. So the questions that the broker asked were questions that somebody not in the business would ask. So it got us, you know, it was able to get the kind of the wheels turning and get us thinking about what kind of questions is a potential buyer going to ask, you know, what Whenever they ask, you know, how much, how many, how many volunteers do you have at your race? And you have to answer, well, sometimes zero, you know, that, you know, and then you have to kind of explain yourself on why that is and how, you know, when you talk to, you know, other race directors are like, oh yeah, we have 10,000 volunteers or, you know, thousands of volunteers at our race. They come, they just, they're coming out of the gates trying to just volunteer at our race, you know, and just kind of explaining the, the cost associated with putting on a race, equipment buying, equipment upkeep, labor costs storage, you know, where do you keep all, where do you keep, you know, 1526 inch reflective cones and how do you store them? And how do you get them out to the race site? You know, kind of the stuff that I, you know, we, as race directors, we kind of take for granted because that's what we do. How do you do all that? So you kind of have to, it kind of, it's diving a little deeper than what you, you know, with, than what, what's kind of on top of your head. Right. And I guess with a seasoned race director, like, you know, if you try to sell to Porter or something, you know, he would, I guess, you know, race directors on the other end might be a little bit more aggressive with price and stuff. Someone who's coming into this with a completely clean slate, they may be willing to up their goodwill a little bit and maybe uh, pay a little bit more. Is that right? You know, at the end of the day, it's a business. There's money in and money out, you know, so at the end, it's got to be profitable and it's got to make sense, uh, you know, on both ends. As I said, we weren't really in the place where we, where we needed to sell immediately. Where we didn't even we didn't have to sell at all. It had had we not had the, the the father and son that ended up buying the events come around, we may not have sold them. We'd still own them today, and it'd still be you know rocking and rolling. It'd be a little different now, obviously post COVID, but we'd still be doing what we do and what we love doing. And I don't think it's one of those things where somebody coming in has a grander idea of what it is, because when you start digging into the books, all businesses are the same. 
it's you know it's the, the cost of goods sold and the cost of cost of operating a business times you know with the revenue that comes in can you make it all balance out yeah that's a good point to keep in mind particularly when we get to the valuation uh, part of the discussion uh, and stuff about multiples and all of that it's a good thing to keep in mind that again as you say businesses are all the same and people tend to approach valuing businesses in a kind of standard way so before we wrap up the whole business broker thing, which I think is really interesting, what kind of commission did they end up taking in the end, the uh, the brokers? Honestly, I don't have the agreement here in front of me, but I think it was somewhere between 7 and 10% of the purchase price. Okay. Okay. Uh, good amount. Yeah. Moving on then to the actual transaction. Can I, can I add one thing? Yep. I was just going to say, we, we've never used a broker, but we have used a lawyer. And I think the lawyer is a helpful thing when you're not buying a complete business or a very large business, but they are very helpful in helping you to write the contracts, the purchase and sale agreements, whatever documentation, and also forcing you to think more or less emotionally and more rationally about what you're taking on and prompts you to ask questions of the buyer or seller that you might not yourself think of. To basically think in terms of the worst case scenario, not expecting the worst case scenario, but, but being prepared for it. And I think that's been very useful. That's interesting. And I will say the well on the the broker side. So the broker did provide those kind of services. So basically they were our representatives since we hired them. That's the how the how the agreement works with them. So they're basically representing us in the sale until we need to get involved on in the you know the details and when we start doing the discovery and things like that. Uh, so they went through in the contracts and the you know the, the the asset acquisition agreement, the final, you know, bill of sale and all of that. So I will say that is that is part of the service that's provided by the broker is they especially if you go to them as the seller and you're working with them they're you're paying them once the sale is made they're they're providing that addition and in working with the broker besides the one we did they have lawyers they had creative they had the uh, the people that put together the full prospectus and all that stuff and to your point Porter about um, employing a lawyer I guess they worked for uh, like just a fixed fee, right? Like not a performance or a commission-based fee. Yes. You just decide how much you want them to do and they just bill you, you know, for the hourly rate. Okay. And they're not, they're not, they have not served for me as a go-between. They've simply helped to advise me and, and help answer questions and come up with questions and review things. And what kind of lawyer would you turn to for this kind of transaction? Uh, a running lawyer. Um, <laughs> I feel like, a con- I mean, a contract lawyer um, is would be good. And I think honestly, one who is familiar with at least in passing with a running event and how it works would also be helpful. And that's how I found mine is, you know, he was a, a fellow runner friend who's also a lawyer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That always helps um, runners, <laughs> yeah. you know, they'll, they'll do anything for free. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting point and it's quite helpful uh, because I wanted to transition a little bit into the transaction uh, side of things. You were mentioning that lawyer helped out with mapping out what would go into the transaction and the documents and like, carving out things, because I guess you're not actually buying a company. Like neither of you actually bought or sold uh, companies during those transactions, right? Well, I've done both. Um, I've bought races as not a company, just just an asset or a set of assets. And I've also sold companies or rather portions of companies um, as well. But it's a very important distinction for when you're evaluating things and, and writing the contract of what you're doing. Because in the case when you're not actually buying a company, uh, say when you when you specifically reached out and bought those events, what exactly are you buying? So what goes into the transaction? 
Not a whole lot when it boils down to it, um, to be honest, which is always a point of surprise for people when I talk to them about this. But in my experience, it's been a database of runners and volunteers. It's been uh, a URL, a website, social media assets. It should include documentation of past races, you know, permits, layouts, um, contact information. It should include uh, introductions to sponsors and permitting agencies. If you're not familiar with them already, um, pictures from past races, perhaps a marketing account on Facebook or Google ads. And that is that's kind of it. Um, it's it's not a ton when it boils down to it. There's not a lot of I mean, you might be buying equipment as well, perhaps from signage, um, but it's not there's not a lot of brick and mortar assets there. And I guess you're also including in that all the um, intellectual property, you know, like trademarks, logos, uh, whatever, all of that stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. If there's any trademarks or, or anything like that, then that would be transferred, which is not I've done that before with the um, copyright or the patent and trademark office. It's not as hard as it sounds like it is, um, but it's not super easy to do. Was that also the case for you, Tony, when you when you sold your series? Basically, um, is that, you know, like the bunch of stuff you would transition over to the buyer typically? Yeah, it was it was an asset sale. It was not a company sale. Um, so we were selling the race assets because we were keeping a couple of the race assets that we had uh, developed. So these were the, just the specific races themselves. Uh, yeah, the um, the purchase agreement was 90% of it was a, just pages and pages of assets, uh, whether they were digital, whether it was IP, whether it was URLs, um, equipment, physical equipment, because we, we had lots and lots of physical equipment, um, you know, even the, the cones to put on the races and everything. Um, the inflatables, banners, you know, all just all the stuff. So we had all we had part of the process at the very beginning was to inventory everything that we had, um, whether it was physical, whether it was digital, whatever, Facebook pages, Twitter accounts, Instagram accounts, websites, whether it was uh, I think we had a Squarespace page as the, the series page and we used run sign up for the actual event pages, all the URLs. So it was a lot of transfer of ownership. And, you know, as Porter mentioned, the documentation was huge, too. Um, I had put together a manual because uh, we hired a race director about a year and a half before we sold. Um, and so I had been working on a manual on basically event operations. How do you put on this specific race? How much fencing do you need? How many porta-potties? Uh, who do you call? With Who's your permitting agencies? You know, just all of the information that you need for each individual race. So all that documentation was all handed over and made the 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 actual selling of the assets much much simpler much much more uh, straightforward versus some you know if I had not had all of that stuff okay you run a pretty large operation and you know we've been emailing with both of you through um, your own domain and business emails and stuff sometimes you know like people particularly when they build races from scratch or or smaller events they tend to tangle up their personal email with their business email uh, sometimes particularly at the beginning. Does that ever sort of like catch up with you in terms of actually transferring domains and Twitter accounts? And does that ever become like a serious hurdle in these transactions? I haven't found it to be. I do get every once in a while random emails from GoDaddy.com for URLs that I have not owned in years. Um, But I have not found that to be um, an issue. I think the attention to detail that a buyer or seller shows in that communication, whether it's like Tony was saying that there's just pages and pages of of assets, uh, the more detail that you see there, I think is always a positive indicator of how um, earnest and 
positive of an experience the transaction will be. The other thing I, really, I wanted to add is that when you are buying and selling a race and it's not a company, the IRS, and I'm not a, I'm not a CPA, so this is something that um, I can't speak to completely, but an important consideration is that the IRS will consider this to be a goodwill transaction, which has implications for your taxes in, in the United States. So if you're buying or selling a race, make sure that you talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about, about goodwill and how that does affect your taxes, because the IRS is not going to see a race the same way that you might see a race as far as how it affects your taxes. Do you have any, any information to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So basically, I, as I understand it, if you're a buyer of a race and you're paying somebody, say, $100,000 for this race, you will need to specify in the purchase and sale agreement how much of that corresponds to physical assets. Like this race comes with uh, $100,000 cones. So it's worth $100,000 because each cone is worth a dollar. And the IRS would say, okay, yeah, you, you spent $100,000 that's on cones that qualifies as a business expense. You can write it off off your taxes. But if it includes 10 cones and a whole bunch of social media accounts and participant lists and things that are much more intangible and don't really have a corresponding um, easy to ascertain dollar value, they're going to look at that and say, oh, you spent, you know, $1,000 on cones, but you're spending $99,000 on goodwill, essentially. And they will not, as I understand it, allow you to treat that uh, or you can try uh, but they will not like you treating that $100,000 as a business expense. They will let you write off $1,000, but the $99,000 you spent, you cannot write off, which is a real, obviously, uh, disappointing for the buyer. Right. Yeah, it's an asset purchase allocation is what, that, what that's called. There's different classes of assets whenever, uh, whenever a business is formed. Um, and we have, in, in our purchase agreement, we actually have a table um, listing out the allocation. Uh, so like class one is cash and cash equivalents that you have on hand. Class two is any traded investments, uh, accounts receivable, class three, consumables is class four. So we had some of those because that was, you know, Gatorade and cups and things like that. Tangible fix. So that would be the equipment and things like, or yeah, the equipment, uh, non-competition uh, agreements. You do apply a value to uh, non-competes that you that you uh, implement whenever you're buying and selling, um, and then any intangible assets that be all your URLs, your social media, and then class seven, the final one is goodwill, and that's basically what usually, at least what happened in our case, was uh, we worked with the buyer and divided out the purchase price and said how much are the consumables worth? Well, it's this much, and we kind of broke it out that way, uh, and then. Everything else, it just kind of lists, lists it that everything else is goodwill, you know, after that. So, is there any like conflict between a buyer and a seller there? I mean, I can see why the seller uh, or maybe the buyer, like one of the two parties, may have an interest in maybe shifting value between intangibles and goodwills and other stuff. Is there a conflict there between the two parties where they might be like pulling in different directions? Or is it just the one party that cares about it and then the other side, you know, they're just, they're just paying the price that doesn't make a difference to them? Yeah, on the, the buyer side, it's not as, uh, or it's, it, makes, it makes more of a difference than, than on the seller side. Um, you know, as Porter mentioned on the tax side, you know, what's, what's, the, uh, the, what's, what's able to be written off um, versus what's not. Uh, on the, the seller's side, it's all selling of an asset, whether it's goodwill or not. 
Um, so it's taxed differently on the seller side. So you mentioned earlier, uh, Tony, and, and Porter mentioned as well, that you have this uh, purchase and sale agreement, right? So it's a pretty key document in the whole transaction. It lists all the things that are being bought and sold. What else goes into that document? Does it mention, you know, like timing, when things are going to move, uh, you know, when things are going to happen, like how they're going to move, all of that stuff? Uh, does it go into that kind of level of detail? It really depends. Ours was um, fairly straightforward for the most part because it was uh, uh, it was listed purchase price, and then we had an incentive bonus uh, for an additional portion of the races because I was uh, actually staying on with them for about six months as the transition period uh, to get everything transferred over. So ours wasn't too uh, too much in depth, uh, but there are obviously indemnifications, non non competes. Um, you know, the, uh, like I said, the list of assets was the, was the biggest part of this whole thing. Most of the pages were that any assumed liabilities and things like that for, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a contract. It's, it's a standard, you know, very, if you've ever bought a house, if you've ever, um, done anything like that, then you, you kind of have seen the format and it's, it's very similar, uh, across the board. Um, there weren't really any surprise things in here. I mean, it was all very straightforward. Once the price is agreed on, then it's all just kind of details and filling out the filling in the gaps. And which party generally drafts that? Would that be the buyer or the seller who sort of um, initiates drafting the purchase sale agreement? Uh, for us, it was the buyer. I'm not sure if Porter has the same experience or not. Yeah, I've had it go both ways. Um, in most cases, as the buyer, I provided the contract, and that was largely because. Once I had done it one time, I had the uh, the purchase and sale agreement drafted, and it was easy to just change the dates, the names, the assets, and retain all the rest of the language. It should be fairly straightforward at that point. There shouldn't be a lot of surprises or uh, curves that arise from the purchase and sale agreement. I do think that um, you want to have the dates in there of when when things are finalized, when things are going to be transferred. Um, the purchase, the non-compete agreement in there should be very specific in terms of the geographic area it's covering and the time that it's covering, and maybe even the modality of the race. If somebody's putting on triathlons and running events, maybe it should only cover one or the other, depending upon what's being sold. Uh, it should also cover uh, what's not being purchased because it could be that the race has outstanding debts or things that are owed vendors or timers or other parties and you want to be very clear that you're not buying those things or maybe you are buying those things and you want to spell those things out and then also if you're buying a race where perhaps the race is in october and you're buying it in may or you're, you're um, signing the agreement in may but you're not taking ownership until after the race has occurred you may need to put in there some clauses about the race's performance that year to protect yourself from you know, maybe the person sells it and they're like, well, I don't, you know, why, why even bother this year? And so you want to make sure that the quality is, is still there. And also, if you're buying a race where maybe the rate numbers have been declining, you want to put some sort of clause in there that will affect the final price based upon how the race does. So there could be a bonus for a race that does well in that last year or a penalty if the race is doing poorly, where for every, you know, 10 registrations less, it affects the purchase price this much. Um, and that way you're kind of protecting yourself from any uh, future effects of the race that year. Right. But but those effects, I mean, from the point of view of, of, let's say, Tony, who was selling his race, 
he might have those clauses in there that you know either reward him or punish him uh, after the actual transaction, but he wouldn't have any say on, on how the race is managed, right? So it's a little bit of you know like like a roll of the dice. I mean, you're just you're just waiting to see how the race might do, and you have no control over it. And maybe new management, you know, doesn't pay enough attention. And in the end, you're on the hook, you're, you're on risk for something that you have no control over, I guess, right? With, uh, with these bonus payments. Yeah. Well, I, I guess it's all about um, controlling that risk and deciding how much you're, you're accept, you're, you can accept. I guess in this particular example, I was thinking of if you're buying a race, if you're, if you're signing an agreement in the spring for a race that takes place in the fall, for example, but the seller is still putting it on in the fall. That's the situation where you want to have some clauses in place that reward or punish the seller for for their performance to control your risk as much as you can. And our race, so the way ours was set up was we were selling in June, in the, but I was staying on until the end of December. So they worked in, they called it contingent consideration, depending on the outcome of the, the remaining races of the, that calendar year. Uh, and since I was, you know, staying on in my same capacity and operating the business, I was able to, you know, keep, I didn't, obviously I wasn't keeping the books anymore, but I was able to see and make sure the races were still, everything was happening the way it was, uh, for continuity for the remainder of that year. You know, of the many things that you'll need to worry about when selling your race, keeping a clean record of your events data, being able to share that data with buyers and when it comes to pulling the trigger, being able to transfer that data onto the next race director is right there at the top of the list. And I can tell you there's no better platform to do all that on than Give Sign Up Run Sign Up. With Give Sign Up Run Sign Up, it's easy to shift backend race access from one race director to another, providing third parties of your choosing with instant insights into historical participant data and communications. In fact, Every single historical action a participant may have taken on your race, from using a coupon code to making a donation, is stored right there on your race director dashboard. What does that mean? Well, it means that you can boast to the buyer being able to transfer over not just a list of emails, but a full CRM system that your events buyer can then use to extract more value from your race, meaning an easier and more profitable transaction for you, the seller. On top of that, you can make use of Give Signup Run Signup's extensive reporting functionality to quickly furnish potential buyers with all kinds of valuable insights, from historical registration patterns to repeat participant data, both super important metrics that can demonstrate the quality of your annual registration revenue. And of course, these are all tools you can benefit from from many years before you decide to sell your events. Keeping your data in good order is just something you'd want to do. And when the time comes to transition your events, it will make your life a whole lot easier. So, to learn more about Give Signup, Run Signup's amazing technology platform, head over to runsignup.com. That's runsignup.com. And while you're there, because there's so many great features to go over, my advice would be to just hit the schedule a demo button and let one of the team walk you through how everything comes together. You will not regret it. In the meantime, we still have plenty of this very interesting episode ahead of us, including valuing your event and negotiating the sale. So let's get back to buying and selling races with Tony Sapp and Porter Bratton. Speaking of staff, 
and people staying on. Is that something that's quite common in these transactions that, uh, you know, maybe the buyer would mandate that, you know, the race director or part of uh, the previous management team would have to stay on with the event? I, I think that depends a lot on the race. Um, I think regardless, though, of what, what race you're buying or selling, there should be some continuity. You, you never want a situation where the seller sells it and then drops off the planet, the face of the earth, um, where they're just, they're just gone. Um, because you're going to have questions, no matter how experienced a race director you are, how well you know the race, there will be questions. In my experience, there are some races where there is a personality attached to the race. And I found that to be more true in the trail running world, where it is a lot more community driven and driven by the, uh, you know, charisma or personality of the race director, where people are, people are attracted to that and want to be a part of it. And so in a situation like that, that would be essential that um, there be some very public um, continuity where the runners understand that, yes, the race is being sold and there's new management, but it's done, being done not under duress for the first in the first place, but also that there is goodwill and, you know, mutual benefit or positive feelings about everything so that you don't have that fall off of, of runners who, who see the new management and view that as a as a negative or a threat to their to that that world that community um, and then they stay on i think that in other cases maybe the road running world where it's a little bit more impersonal that's not quite as important um but that but that may still be a big consideration and i think it's important to draw a, a distinction between um you know frequently with the race there's kind of a key personality and then there are supporting staff and uh you need to figure out which which is more important. In, in my experience, I found that the supporting staff, I mean, we have we have a full set of staff and so we've never needed to have a, a staff stay on afterwards. But generally there is some more well-known public personality that uh, if even if they're not still working, there needs to be some public communications from that person to, to make the runners and the participants uh, feel warmly towards you as the new management. Yeah, you're basically saying if Lazarus Lake decided to uh, sell Barkley Marathons or something, <laughs> there's going to be a significant discount, I guess. Yeah, extreme example, yes. Okay. <laughs> maybe you change your name to Lazarus Lake if you do that. Yeah, yeah, maybe grow a beard and uh, start chain smoking. <laughs> yes. No, but I can I can definitely see that, actually. And, and sometimes, you know, it, it's sort of like cutting both ways, this thing, because having that personality, I guess, as part of a race, and I know exactly the type of race you're thinking of, you know, that uh, trail running is a good example, I think, uh, where people have a connection with a race director. And that's a, that's a great bonus when you're actually um, the person developing the race and you're growing the race and people know you and they associate you with the race. But then, you know, part of the equity and the value in that event uh, ends up then being attached to you personally, which uh, I guess is not a great place to be uh, when you're trying to sell a race, right? Because when the time comes, just get out of the event fully, which can get a little bit tricky in in these in these cases. Part of what we did is we actually went in, and this business is 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 different for everybody. For me, it's a it's a business, um, you know, and it's, it's something I love doing and I enjoy it. But at the end of the day, it's a business. Uh, so when we developed the the series of events. And we, we actually brought in a race director and we paid the race director to produce the events uh, to separate the ownership from the, I guess, the face of the race, the race director himself. And part of the agreement, uh, the, and actually that was the, the buyers that were more intent on this than we were, 
is they wanted to make sure the race director stayed on. So basically his agreement that we had would just transfer over to them at that point. Um, so, and it's, they're, they're large enough that it's not really a face of the race, but it's the, it's more that continuity of the staff, the people that help all the volunteers, you know, having that same person they're talking to and seeing, um, really helped out in, in this, in this particular situation. So I mean, maybe that's something for, you know, anybody that's thinking of selling is just to kind of think and to kind of prepare to sell prior to, you know, just going out and saying, Hey, I'm for sale. Yeah. Right. And for you, you're saying it was a conscious decision, Tony, to actually uh, bring in that race director sort of as a transition plan to eventually uh, selling the race. Is that the case? It was either that or because we weren't intent on necessarily selling. It was to separate ourselves from the events so he could manage, operate, produce the races, and we can go do our own side things. Cool. So now let's move on to uh, probably one of the most interesting and contentious areas of all this, um, the real black box, as it were, in buying and selling, which is how do you calculate the value for an event? Uh, so, okay, uh, you're ready to sell. I guess uh, that's probably a little bit more you know, emotional for people, selling rather than buying. So you want to sell your event or you're thinking of just uh, you know, having a valuation at the back of your head of what it might be worth, how should you go about it? How should you think about it? What is the value for your event? Got to be 10 times revenue or it's nothing. <laughs> no, so we, that was part- well, The race could go on to be the biggest race in the Washington state. So obviously it's worth a million dollars. It's just waiting to happen. All it needs is the right person to be able to put in full time. So much potential. No, so for us, it was, it, it, I had, my thoughts on what I thought the business was worth and what the races themselves are worth. Cause I kept the books. I did all the books myself for all the events. Um, but that was, that was where another, another area where the broker really came in, they were able to take a really outside looking in, this is a business, you know, look at it and say, well, here's your books. Here's what your books say. And here's what we're able to find out about your business, about how the value or how your industry and how the valuations are normally done. Um, and Porter probably knows more about it on the, seller side or on the the buyer side but for me as a seller we were what i was hoping for was either one times revenue or three times uh profit on the the individual events so those were the two i was looking at and it came back that the the broker came back with the exact same valuation so it worked out you know really uh, it's just it's really just taking a realistic look at your books and saying what would somebody actually be willing to pay for this? You know, because we, we approached, just like uh, Porter had mentioned earlier, we went to several race directors around the Houston area about potentially purchasing some of their events. And they would come back with these ridiculous evaluations um, just because they didn't want to sell at that point. And that's fine. I, I'm fine with that. But it's, you know, so I don't know if that was more in jest to just kind of brush us off or if that was them truly thinking their event was worth that amount of, you know, that amount of money. It's all, it, this is where it really comes down to. This is a business. This is positive cash flow and having uh, a leg to stand on and being able to say you've supported families with your events makes a big difference in the valuation rather than just saying, well, I'm pretty sure it's worth this. Yeah. I, I started out um, when I first wanted to buy a race or, or sell a race, actually, um, talking to a friend who was a runner, but um, was not a race director, but worked in the finance world. Um, and he suggested to me that three, a rough thumb of a rule of thumb of three times net profit is a good starting point. And that's what I've used in all of my transactions is, is roughly three. 
Uh, and that's gone up or down considerably based upon a lot of factors, whether you're the buyer or the seller and how motivated people are. Uh, but I think the biggest thing is to, is as Tony alluded to, is to look at the books and be as dispassionate um, and rational as possible about what your event is actually worth. Um, because, because at the end of the day, how much money it, it um, produces is what's going to determine what it's worth, not how much it could make in the past or what you hope it will make, I guess. Um, I think the more years of data that you have access to is very helpful, where if you have an anomalous year, perhaps, where there was road construction going on, and so your costs were considerably higher and that affected your net profit, if that's more of a blip as opposed to a trend, that's going to be a lot easier to demonstrate if you have uh, six years of data versus two. As I said earlier, I guess, if you're, if you're the buyer, you're likely going to have to put a higher valuation. Um, if, you're, if you're approaching somebody out of the blue, you're going to need to put a higher number on that because that the market in that case is one person, the seller. And so they're going to be able to kind of dictate a higher number. Yeah. And then, I mean, obviously how much physical stuff comes with it as well is uh, physical assets come with the race is a, term, is a factor. And I'm kind of your relationship as well with the person, if you're the potential buyer, if you if you know them, if you don't know them, um, that's going to play into it as well. So to your point about um, about physical assets, just for a, for a moment here, how does that factor into it? Because if you're paying a multiple on profits, uh, then I guess you pay sort of market value for all of the other like hard stuff, right? The the physical goods, the the trusses and the cones and stuff that you're bringing in, right? Right. I mean, buying buying equipment, it's easy to put a number to a to a generator or a cone. Um, it's and so that is essentially a separate calculation, I suppose, from the net the net revenue calculation because you're buying the generator one time, um, and so you're going to pay a price for it. Whereas the net profit, um, you know, you're you're also buying it, I guess, one time, but it is a separate calculation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that would be that, that. So you take that was, you know, they, obviously they took the books, they took all the information I gave them for past events. Then they took a list of equipment and said, okay, this is about what we think this equipment's worth. And I had the valuation for everything and the depreciation. So I already knew exactly what it was. It all, it all comes down to the, the final number. But, you know, that, that three times is really kind of the standard to, to start. Yeah. One more important consideration is if you, if the race, seller for example is paying themselves a salary where if the race is making hundred thousand dollars and they're paying themselves a twenty thousand dollar salary could be a very different uh calculation they're paying themselves a sixty thousand dollar salary so need to make sure that in the books that's being called out and specified so that you're looking at an accurate net profit not a um not one that's being distorted by a whole bunch of salaries being paid out or or something else yeah which i guess means at the end of the day that, you know, we're talking sort of abstractly of what a race might be worth. But of course, the buyer, depending on their circumstances and, you know, whether, you know, they have staff, for instance, that they can better utilize, different buyers can end up extracting different levels of value out of the same event at the end of the day, right? Yes. So help me out with something here because um, there's this TV show uh, I used to watch uh, online called uh, Shark Tank. And um, there's one we had in the UK as well. Uh, it's called Dragon's Den. And I think they have it in, in Australia and a few other places. And the kinds of multiples that get thrown around there, they're not three times. They're not three X. They're not in that kind of ballpark. So what is different? Why do you see in those shows, which perhaps also, you know, influence some people in thinking around what they should expect from their event to sell for. 
you see in those shows people throwing around multiples of 10 times, etc. And we're talking about just a mere three times profit here. So, so what's the difference? I think it's mostly because of the, the different the, the industry and the, the status of the business. A lot of the Shark Tank businesses, uh, they're either software or they're startups or things like that. So they don't really have a, a history of revenue to go off of. What I think a lot of the sharks are buying into on those shows are the, the dragons. They're buying into the, the potential, the future, what they could grow it to with their, uh, you know, with them just posting on Instagram about it or having it part of their, uh, you know, part of their business portfolio. Um, I mean, you may be able to extract something more, you know, if you went to some went went to a high level capital investor or something like that. Um, I mean, we see some pretty big multiples getting thrown around with uh, with the Eventbrite IPO and things like that. None of us are Iron Man, you know. We're not we're not huge organizations with lots of people uh, with hundreds of employees around the world. You know, the people that are listening to this podcast, they're they're like Porter and I. We're you know one, two, three, four person businesses. Maybe have a few part timers on top of that. It's not a corporation that's that, that's offering assets. It's a you know it's a small local company for the most part. So, yeah, and it's not on TV. Uh, it's probably the biggest thing that you know. It's not very sexy to be like, oh well, this this race has uh, you know been very stable and it's a uh, it's not going to take off because there are very. I mean, when was the last time you heard of a half marathon that like you know had any sort of exponential growth? Like it doesn't. Um, I think maybe 10 years ago with a mud run or a color run, that was, that could be the case. But if you're buying, uh, an 8k down the road from you or whatnot, um, you know, if you grow 5% or 10% next year, that's in my experience, that's you're doing, you're doing just fine. Um, anything beyond that's amazing. So yeah, it's all about the, this, this, I guess the opportunity for scale and there's not the scales of races growing is in the single and maybe double digits, but not. Uh, not the exponentials that Shark Tank is pitching. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So let's circle back a little bit to the transaction itself and the negotiation. So we sort of discussed the purchase and sale agreement. You mentioned there, besides the assets that are being um, that are part of the transaction, um, other things that may want to touch on and elaborate a little bit on, things like indemnities, things like non-competes, I think Porter sort of like um, wrapped that up quite well with all the specifics that need to go into the non-compete. So besides the assets, what else would you expect? What are the warranties, you know, like commitments, indemnities, any kind of other stuff that might be spelled out as part of the uh, transaction itself? Yeah, well, I wish I'd reviewed my purchase and sale agreement before this call. I would have all those things at hand. But um, I think you want to spell out in there a commitment from um, the seller of how much assistance they're going to give you. They're going to be, you know, available for a time period of six months or a year or two years or whatnot um, for your questions. And they're going to, you know, uh, commit to dedicating, giving you up to, you know, 40 hours a year or some specific amount so that if there is a more complicated question that does come up, that you're not in the position of them saying, well, I've already given you, you know, you've asked me too many questions. I'm done. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm moving to my lakefront house and you know whatever that i've used with all the money you gave me so i don't want to talk to you anymore as far as indemnities i think that is probably a fairly more boilerplate issue where you just want to spell it out very clearly that essentially much like a race waiver that you're being held harmless for any laundry list of things that could happen that probably won't happen that could happen 
um, so that you can't be hopefully will not be sued in case anything goes awry with with the race or the purchase. Yeah, it's it, the you know indemnity is basically boilerplate across or boilerplate across the board. I think um, it's you know it, it's just a small section in our. I'm looking at our asset agreement or asset purchase agreement right now that basically spells out the buyer or seller. You know the thing, the list of things that we can't be held accountable for, uh, past bills, things like that. Just laying it all out there and saying that you know if there's a if there's a an invoice that comes in you know in three months from a vendor that just forgot about it. You know, for a race that happened a year ago, uh, that the, the the buyer is not responsible for it. The seller is responsible for making that payment. So just the stuff like that, and you know, having the those those timeframes laid out, I think for a transition period is really important. Um, we had a, a ninety day transition period built in on top of the interim uh, service agreement, where I was going to maintain the same basically operational control over the races. For the six month period following the sale. So after that six month period, then the 90 day transition period started where, you know, it was basically I'm available any, any time and all the time for the, the buyer with any questions they had about the, the operations of the business or any questions they had about what the race director was doing and things like that. I think also from a customer service perspective, you want to make sure there's no gaps where if you have people who deferred from the, the previous race, you want to make sure that you get them all imported the race. You want to make sure there's no where, um, yeah, you just don't leave anybody, be, any of the runners behind where they're kind of getting lost in the gap in between the purchase and, and the sale. I've had that happen where, you know, the seller forgot to send me the list of deferrals. And then you uh, you get emails from these people. It's like, hey, I'm supposed to do this race, I'm not si- but I'm not signed up. What's what's the deal? And then you got to give them, you know, a free race entry or whatever, because you want to keep them happy. Um, but you really wish the seller had had told you about all those people. Yeah. And I guess that's a good example, particularly now with the pandemic, right? I mean, deferrals were never a particularly significant portion of participants. Uh, But, you know, with races rolling year over year and with all the cancellations and deferrals, in principle, uh, deferrals might also be a bit of a liability for someone uh, buying a race right now because you have like, you know, someone paid two years ago to enter the race. That revenue is gone. And now you're buying a race with like 50% free places in it or something, right? Yeah. We bought a race and um, that ended up getting canceled in 2020. And so we had to deal with that, that where there was a significant number of deferrals that was going to represent a significant chunk of our potential revenue for the race that will be happening um, this year. And that's the case where like it wasn't spelled out in the purchase and sale agreement. And so it really depends upon the relationship you have with the, um, the seller. I hope if you have a good relationship, hopefully you can work something out where they're not. I wouldn't expect them to pay me full price, but maybe, you know, for every, you know, pay, pay me 40 percent or 50 percent of what that revenue was so that I'm not just eating those, you know, 100 registrations or whatever it is of deferrals. So in terms of other things like, uh, you know, your relationships with sponsors, um, other contracts, uh, you know, sponsorship contracts, which may straddle multiple years, are those also written quite explicitly into the transaction? What happens with those? Yeah, there was a lot of back and forth about making sure they had the correct contacts um, for each of the individual events, whether it was permitting um, or traffic control or who was responsible for laying the cones out on the road, because in some cases it's the city, some cases it's not. Definitely having a list of contacts 
And I think we're going to touch on this in a little bit, but more of the preparing to sell side of things, having lists of contacts, having all the emails and phone numbers, um, not just the individual people, but the department they're in as well. Uh, we had a situation where one of the people that we, we had worked with for four years just suddenly left in between, like in between the time we sold and the time um, the race was going to happen again. And they didn't know who to contact. Well, I had to, you know, go and find. I I had to go at that point and find who the new contact was in that office because they didn't know who to contact for for the permit. Um, so having all of that information and having the vendor, uh, not just sponsors and, and 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 permitting, but vendors as well. You know, where do you get porta potties? You know, if I want to get porta potties at the same price you did. Can I order from the same person? Well, we got to negotiate and make sure you know with that vendor to make sure they understand same event new owner, new, new person to invoice, but they should be getting the same deal we were getting to keep the valuation still accurate. Yeah. With the vendors, hopefully it's a little more straightforward because you are paying them. And so they have a vested interest in you as the, as the new buyer in, in maintaining that relationship um, since they're making money off of it. I think with the case of both sponsors and volunteers, there is uh, much more of a personal aspect to it um, with, with both. With the volunteers, um, you know, people are working for free, essentially. And so if there was a, a close relationship between the seller and the volunteers, then that's another thing where an introduction and what the seller says to those sponsors, the volunteers, excuse me, goes a long ways towards bridging that gap um, from the seller to the buyer. And the same thing goes for the sponsor. And if there isn't a, con- a multi-year contract in place, where it is kind of more of a year-to-year thing, or maybe even a handshake agreement, uh, it's the the onus is on the seller to um, do a good introduction. But it's also should understand that you know the the seller can't control what the volunteer or sponsor chooses to do. Uh, they can't force them to continue to be a volunteer or continue to pay money to be a sponsor. And so you may you may lose there may be a fallout, or you may lose some volunteers, you may lose a sponsor depending upon the relationship prior between the seller and the volunteer sponsor. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like all of this, um, which is fairly obvious, right? It's like any other transaction that, you know, you can, you can only write down so much and, you know, rely on the legalities of the contract. Uh, you know, you're not going to start dragging people to court for, you know, like, a, like little details in the contract that go wrong. So hopefully you have a relationship there that you can trust and, and that works and hopefully you're dealing with someone, you know, with a fairly sober-minded individual who are going to, you know, are going to be able to help you out when when things go wrong, uh, and w- and when things don't go according to the to the absolute letter of the contract, right? Yes, I think it's also, but it's also worth going into it with the worst-case scenario mind, you know, plan, hope for the best, plan for the worst, because things can go poorly. You know, I've had. Most of my transactions have been very smooth. Everybody feels good afterwards. But there have been um, some where uh, there was afterwards poor feelings arose, and I've received some very light threats. I guess in the past, uh, nothing that I took too seriously, but it still is unsettling. I guess, and so it's important for you, I think, mentally to map out like how what's the worst case scenario. Like if I if I receive a letter, like a cease and desist letter or a letter threatening to sue, like, how am I going to feel about that? Um, not expecting it to happen, but again, just like, 
preparing for it and making sure that if it does happen, it's not going to ruin your life. And also getting ready for that inevitable phone call once your race, you, you take over the race for the first year and it's super successful and the owner wants it back all of a sudden uh, because it, you, <laughs> yeah. know, you, you were able to, you were able to kind of rebuild it. So yeah, those, those happen as well, you know, and just kind of prepare yourself that that's, you know, people, sometimes feelings get hurt. You know, it's you, you, you know, the agreement was made that was made and you stick by that. But. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I can definitely see that. So, so you spoke earlier, uh, Tony, um, you mentioned uh, getting ready for the sale. The onus of putting together documents in a transaction like this falls with the seller, right? So the buyer is just there basically asking for things and they just receive it. So from your point of view, for your transaction, how long did that preparation take? Uh, basically, I guess, with the advice of your broker, how long did it take to just pull everything together? So I like to think that I'm extremely diligent uh, when it comes to books and things like that, accounting for money, you know, money, cash flow and everything like that. Um, and documenting things as well. Like how much, how much fencing did I buy at this rate or rent at this race this year? How much did I do the next year? Well, I've had a 20% increase. Why? You know, things like that. Um, so really the best way to prepare is to start from the very beginning, from the very beginning of you producing your event keep a spreadsheet of all the expenses and all the money coming in and going out, uh, what you used it for, uh, document stuff as you do it, be like, Hey, I contacted, you know, in a, in a, you know, in a, you know, just a note app, you know, contacted this person this day, um, and what you, what you accomplished on that contact, um, having that information and having it readily available and organized is going to make the selling process a million times easier. Um, I was able to get through the 10 page initial questionnaire about an hour, hour and a half, because I had all that stuff readily, readily available. And it was easy for me to go reference other material uh, to find, you know, the answer to a question. Uh, same thing whenever the, whenever we did get an offer and the, the potential buyer had questions, they would email uh, a question to the broker, the broker would forward it to me. I'd answer right back because I had done the, the work up front, uh, to have all the stuff in front of me and, you know, readily, easily, easily available. Um, so I could reference it and go back, you know, it's like, Hey, what was this expense for? And why did you guys spend a thousand dollars paid to this person? You know, and it says it was for a, a labor, you know, well, I, I have notes and I go back to my notes and say, well, this, this, this person did this for us this year. That's why we paid him that much. Um, so really the best way is to start, at the very beginning, but if you haven't, if you haven't been as diligent on it now uh, up to this point, you're going to have to spend a lot of time getting things organized. Um, buyers are going to have a lot of questions. Uh, Porter may be less than somebody that's not in the business, but there's going to be a lot of questions that come up because people run events differently. People call things different. And it's not, it's not all straightforward as, you know, or there's not a, uh, there's not a piece of accounting software built for race directors, maybe an idea for later, but um, there's not a piece of accounting software built for race directors. So you have to, you know, you kind of have to work with the tools that you have, but keep it all organized and keep it all consistent across the board. And then when it comes to the actual price negotiation itself, in both your cases, did that take long to basically settle on a price that was agreeable to both parties? Surprisingly, no, I guess, in my case. Um, and maybe that was a sign of just that everybody was uh, sober-minded individuals and understood, you know, what's what. Um, but no, there was not a lot of negotiation or dickering about the price. 
which was made things pleasant. Yeah, ours because we had had the professional valuation done by uh, by the broker. Um, we were confident in our valuation, so we did have some offers that came in like way lowballing at start, and we turned them down and said no. We didn't even counter offer because uh, we knew it wasn't a, a serious offer. Or if it wasn't something that we were interested in. I, I, I didn't want to get in a price war, price negotiation, or anything like that. Um, when we did end up finally accepting an offer, it was it was within our asking range, and they the really the negotiation came down to on the. Uh, what they call the contingent consideration uh, was the, the the performance base for the remainder of the year. Uh, that's where the negotiation came in, not in the actual purchase price itself. So it's, I think if you do a good job in the previous steps that we've talked about today, you'll be at that point where the, the price is kind of locked in for the most part. You know, there might be some back and forth. There may be some, well, we'll give you this much if the races do this, but this much, you know, there's, uh, there's a little bit of back and forth there, but it'll be way less if you're really honest with yourself right up front when you're doing your valuation and putting your documents together. From the buyer's perspective, I think it it behooves you to not do a lowball price, especially if you're not using a broker, because if you come in low, you know not only are your chances of buying not uh, are lessened, but it can also be a little insulting to the seller. Um, and maybe even if they do end up accepting it, that's going to leave in the end a bad taste in their mouth or just make them less that that relate it will sour the relationship a little bit which will affect you for a long time um simply over some dollars which may feel like a lot but um hopefully you have enough confidence in yourself as a race director that you will do a good job with it and make your money back in a few years and that relationship will be preserved and will ultimately be a better investment so morally porter are we saying that basically in a transaction it's basically expected of the buyer to come up with a price like you, you wouldn't go to someone and say, you know, you know, I'm just interested in your race generally, and you tell me what you're interested in in selling for. Yeah, it's gone both ways. I'm no professional negotiator. I'm sure that there's opinions of, of people who do that for a living on what's better to do, but I've had it go both ways where I have proposed a price, and I think it's hard being the person to go first because there is a lot of of things riding on that number. And that's where you need to have a reason, a justification behind that number. So hopefully at that, hopefully at that point, you've got the books and you've looked at them and you come up with a number. And if the seller, you know, is questioning where'd you come up with that number, you can point to, well, like, here's, here's your books. Here's, here's how I came up with this number. It's not just being pulled out of the air. But in other cases, the sellers come up with a number and that frequently, you know, run into that thing of, of the seller having an emotional attachment and valuing it a little bit higher. So I think even though it is a little bit harder or maybe a little more awkward as a buyer, it's probably good to make that number to, to come up with a number um, as the buyer, not the seller, because it, I think it gives you the opportunity to um, sort of establish, set the terms, um, set the set the range and also allows you to sort of not not pay a compliment to the seller, but show them that you value the race. That you're not you're not trying to lowball them. You think it's a good race. It's 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 worthwhile, and that's why you want to buy it. I'm actually a little curious since you are more on the the buying side um, and have a little more experience in that. Whenever we reached out to the several the few races that we did in the in the area, um, we didn't go in guns blazing with the price. Hey, we'll give you this much money for your race no, uh, on the initial yeah. contact. It was more of a 
hey, are you interested in, if you're interested in, you know, selling to another local company, you know, we're, we're open to it if you want to, if you want to discuss it, you know, versus a, hey, I'll give you, you know, $100,000 for your event if you make the, make the decision in the next 10 minutes, you know, anything like that. Yeah. No, never come in with guns blazing with a number. It's always been kind of like, hey, can we have a conversation? Are you open to having a conversation about this? Like we're interested, but uh, want to talk to you first about it. That makes sense. I don't think anyone approaches that that way. Once uh, both parties agree on a price, I guess the purchase and sale agreement spells out the mechanics of what conditions need to be satisfied for um, for the money to be transferred, right? And then it's like, is is it like like a click of the button and just you get a bank transfer and and that's it? How does that all work? Yeah, uh, I mean the way we had it set up um, was we had a schedule. Uh, based on the purchase price, and it was it, it really was just a wire transfer from the from one bank to another. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, your account balance goes up. Everybody's happy. You go out and celebrate, and then the next morning, you wake up and you're like, "Wait, I have no races anymore." Um, no, it 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 was it's really quick actually. Once once all the the stuff got done at that the closing date, it was sign transfer start and then it was get right to work getting domains transferred getting all the emails transferred um i even recommended recommended that the new owners keep my email address but just make it an alias to his email address so that way anybody that was emailing me it would just go to him um anybody on that account because i I use that account specifically and that's another thing getting ready is having having your technology ready for um separated out you know you kind of hit on that earlier with using personal email but having a separate email and everything really made that process a lot easier. But it was, yeah, we got once everything happened all within a couple of hours, you know, from signature to money to starting to get to work in the transition period. Yeah, we only difference. I mean, it's very my experience has been similar to Tony's. The only difference is that we have used uh, register um, cashier's checks instead of a wire transfer um, to get the money to the to the buyer or excuse me, the seller. But yeah, I agree that you need to know like how to transfer a URL, how to set up an email forwarding, you need to be able to, to transfer a Facebook account and, and all those things and making sure that you change, you know, your passwords for your Instagram accounts and make sure that you change those ahead of time so that you're not giving out your personal password and whatnot. There is a little bit of technology know-how that goes into it. Okay. So this has all been super, super interesting. I think there's tons of really, really helpful information here for both prospective buyers and sellers of races. Last question. I guess we're at a pretty funny time now with the pandemic, you know, like lots of events, like there's been a lot of like commotion in the market and, you know, events have been doing some events are coming out of the pandemic better than others. Uh, let's put it that way. Some events, unfortunately, have been struggling a bit. You guys run a lot of races yourself, uh, you know, you time events, you have sort of the pulse of the market. Is this a good time or a bad time to be looking to transact, in your opinion, either to sell or to buy a race? My opinion, I think right now would be the time if I if I was in the market to get back into races, now would be the time to look at purchasing an event uh, just because you might have race directors that have moved on. Um, they've got maybe gotten a full-time job, you know, outside of the the race directing, or they've, you know, their their job has gotten busier, you know, so maybe they're not able to put the time and effort into the race as they once were. Selling wise, I wouldn't sell right now just because there's so much unknown in the future. Unless you're selling to somebody that really understands the endurance industry and the 
the market that we're in, um, I don't think they're going to understand, well, why did your profits drop off, you know, 80% last year? And how, how are you going to make sure, how can you guarantee me that's going to come back? That's me. I've had a couple of events approach me about potentially buying some, you know, me buying into their events. I guess the, on the buying side is, is, is the, uh, the, the side I want to be on right now, not on the selling side. Yeah, I agree that this would be a good time to buy and not sell because, because of the uncertainty and because of presumably the kind of devaluation that races have gone through over the past 18 months. And maybe some people are also tired of doing virtual races and mailing out things, you know, and they're ready to, they're ready to be done with that. Okay, so uh, last word then, please, from uh, each of you. From Tony, I suppose, with uh, more with a seller hat on, and from Porter, from the buyer's perspective, final word, respectively, to buyers and sellers uh, going into a transaction. What's your advice? Make sure, as, as the seller, make sure you understand everything about your company because you're going to get asked everything about your company and the races that you produce. Uh, make sure you start from the very beginning. Keep good books. Keep good documentation. And from there, it just it's another day in the office at that point. It's just answering a lot of questions. Attention to detail, I think, in the early stages is going to pay off a lot over the long term. And understand that, you know, this is a market. Um, it's not like buying a house. It's not a lot of people shopping. It's a market of one person or one company. That relationship is going to matter a lot and that the quality of that relationship. Okay, awesome. I know you guys are, uh, you know, you're members in our Race Directors Hub group. So I know people can find you there if they want to reach out to you with any questions or thoughts um, or perhaps a race or two to sell. <laughs> Do you perhaps want to share your emails as well with our listeners and your contact details? Uh, sure. Uh, my, my email is uh, kind of annoyingly long. It's Porter, my first name, P-O-R-T-E-R at blackfishventures, LLC.com. So that's Black, like the color, fish, the animal, ventures, plural, uh, LLC.com. People can reach out to me at Tony at MyNegativeSplit.com. It's T-O-N-Y at M-Y-N-E-G-A-T-I-V-E-S-P-L-I-T.com. Or you can just go to MyNegativeSplit.com and reach me out there too. Okay, great. Guys, thank you very, very much for your time. Thanks for all your patience before the recording with all the gremlins we had. Thank you very, very much for all the wise advice. Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. And thank you very much to everyone listening in. And we'll see you all on our next podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode on buying and selling races with my guests, Blackfish Ventures, Porter Bratton, and Negative Split Productions, Tony Sapp. You can find more resources on anything and everything related to race directing on our website, racedirectorshq.com. You can also share your questions about buying or selling races or anything else in our Facebook group, Race Directors Hub. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe or leave a review on your favorite player. And also check out the podcast back catalog for more great content like this. Until our next episode, take care and keep putting on amazing races.